2: Hi, I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. In this episode, we step back to get the wide angle view of the culture of science and technology. We've been hearing about harassment and barriers to women seeking careers in politics and entertainment, but what about in scientific fields? Science is supposed to be uniquely merit based and objective, and yet the data say otherwise. As an example, A new survey reveals widespread harassment of women of color in space science.
1: Meanwhile, it's not 1950 anymore, but apparently someone at Google didn't get the memo. An engineer for the tech giant claims that women don't have the right kind of brains to do his job. Find out what the scientific studies say. Plus, how one woman blazed a trail in astronomy despite the barriers and an organization that is changing the face of science for Latina and Native American women. How Bad Is Discrimination in Science, And How Can Women Succeed? In this episode, Wonder Women
2: Elian, Ellian, an American biochemist, once said, I hadn't been aware that there were doors closed to me until I started knocking on them. Dr. Ellian was born in 1918 and knocked on a lot of doors on the way to winning her Nobel Prize in 1988. It's a familiar tale for any woman who has pursued a career in science.
1: Astronomer Jill Tarter also pounded on a lot of doors on her way to becoming a pioneer in her field. As a young girl, she had a nonstop curiosity about technology, but growing up in the 1950s, she found scant encouragement for these interests.
2: She kept knocking on doors anyway. The gender asymmetry didn't change much when she went to college. Dr. Tartar was the only woman in an engineering class of 300 and went on to become one of the few females working in astronomy and eventually the field of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. In all of these pursuits, Jill Tarter had to forge her own path.
1: If you've seen the movie Contact, you know something about Dr. Tarter's single-minded efforts to listen for radio signals from alien life, signals that she is convinced are raining down on us from distant worlds. We're
3: talking about vast distances between the stars. So what can we remotely sense that might indicate a technology somewhere else? Radio travels all the way through the galaxy, between galaxies, no problem. We've never seen the center of our galaxy at optical wavelengths because there's too much dust. But we have incredibly good observations of the center of our galaxy at radio wavelengths.
2: Now, the movie Contacts' iconic image of Jodie Foster wearing a pair of earphones sitting alone next to an array of radio antennas is a bit of poetic license, says Dr. Tarter. She doesn't actually search for signals by listening with a headset, but by monitoring a computer.
1: However, the scene is a kind of metaphor for a lone female astronomer in the field of SETI in particular. Eventually, both science and the public caught up with Dr. Tartar's early vision, astrobiology, the study of the potential for life elsewhere, is now a hot field, and thousands of planets called exoplanets have been discovered
2: orbiting nearby stars. Dr. Tartar has devoted more than 40 years to looking for extraterrestrial life and is a co-founder of the SETI Institute, where we produce this show. She reflects on the long arc of her career in a recent biography, Making Contact.
3: When. I was in middle school and high school. We had guidance counselors who would say things to me like, why do you want to take calculus? You're just going to grow up and have babies, as if the two were incompatible. So the mode of giving advice to young women was not exactly supportive
1: of roles that were beyond being a housewife. So when you heard something like that, you go to your guidance counselor, and you're told, um, why bother with math? You're going to get married and have babies. What went through your mind and your body in that moment? Oh, well, you might imagine that I was
3: really ticked off. That is not the kind of thing that I wanted to hear. I also didn't want to hear, you can't take shop because you're a girl. You have to take home economics. And so my response to that sort of thing was usually, all right, I'll take home economics. And I did, and I learned to sew, which has been a fabulous skill. But then when I did that, you go back and you say, okay, I've done that. Now I want to take shop. But I know from long conversations I've had with Margaret Burbage, who is one of my heroes, a fantastic woman astronomer, she would express it that, when you're trying for something and you're denied on merit, well, that's hard. You work harder the next time. But when you're denied because of your gender, it feels like you've been kicked in the stomach. And that's a feeling that I had, unfortunately, frequently.
1: What's remarkable about your response, though, is that you didn't say, I was discouraged. You said, I was ticked off, and it made you want to work harder. Oh, absolutely. You've got to get around it. I you know if you can't go over that wall, you got to get around it. There's a story that is told in the book of your father supervising you as you took apart a transistor, a transistor radio. <gasps> a transistor radio and you put it back together again. Could you tell that story?
3: I would do anything to spend time with my dad and he had a shop in a garage and I would go out there and tinker with him and one Christmas I was given this fantastic transistor radio which is about the size of a shoebox i mean it was just the be all and end all in the in the 50s and i wanted to know what was inside and how it worked and my dad didn't actually know how it worked but he was very good with his hands and with tools and so he said well take it apart let's figure it out and so i took it apart and we looked at it and i don't think we were all that enlightened by actually how it worked, but he said, Now, all right, put it back together. And so I did, but you know, not quite. There were some bits and pieces that were left on the table after I had reassembled it. So I'd say, Dad! And he'd look at me and he'd say, Do it again.
1: When did the idea of SETI first appeal to you? Because if we picture you taking apart and putting together that transistor radio, it's quite a conceptual leap to go from that and the physicality of that and the immediacy of that to then listening to radio signals that might be coming from somewhere else in the universe. And can you explain to us how that leap was made? Well, it certainly wasn't a straight line path mm-hmm. in in
3: any sense. I ended up working in SETI. Purely, it was just a lucky accident. My first year as a graduate student at Berkeley, I was supported with a research assistantship and my job was to program the first computer that was ever small enough to fit on a desktop. It was called a PDP 8 slash S. That piece of gear, that old computer, totally obsolete, was given to Stu Boyer, an X-ray astronomer, in order to do SETI searches. But he didn't have any money, and so he went begging, and someone gave him this old computer. And when he said, what what do I do with this? They pointed down the hall, and they said, well, Jill's still here, she used to work on that. And so he came and he recruited me for his SETI project. It wasn't anything that was anywhere on my horizons before he walked into my office. But because I could program that old computer, I ended up doing SETI for the rest of my life.
1: But I'm going to press you on this a bit because that's coming into SETI through the interest and the talent of a computer programmer. But picturing alien life somewhere else in the universe does take imagination. And was there a point where you found yourself thinking about aliens, always wondering about it? How did you alight upon that? Well,
3: the question of life, intelligent life, technological life, somewhere else, was a worldview that I'd internalized very early. I think it probably was maybe Saturday morning, Flash Gordon cartoons on the TV. So I remember walking the beach with my dad, very dark beaches on the Minnesota Key on the west coast of Florida. and looking up, this fantastic sky, all of these stars. I spent a lot of time looking at the sky, and somehow I internalized the idea that those stars, were somebody else's sons. So that worldview
1: was always there in the background. It seems that you had two things working against you. A lot working for you, that's obvious, but two things working against you and you've you've outlined them here. One was being a woman in a man's world and the other was an astronomical pursuit that many thought was a waste of time, and that was the search for extraterrestrial life, whether it's intelligent or even microbial. And I'm wondering what skills you employed to negotiate two, I was going to say alien terrains, but I'll say unwelcoming terrains, that of being a woman in a man's world and pursuing what was considered really an outlier scientific pursuit, if it indeed was science at all.
3: Well, certainly I'm nothing if not stubborn, and when I was younger, my mother used to say to me when I did something that she disapproved of or wasn't socially the norm, she would say to me, well, what would they think? And I'd look at her and I'd say, well, who are they? And what do I care what they think? And And who did she mean? uh, It was the they of the cultural norm. And so that attitude was ingrained early, that the person whose opinion I cared most about was my own. And if I thought it was worthwhile, then I would do it. And there's a lot of hubris there, right? And sometimes that got me into trouble many more times than once. Do you
1: think that your status as an outsider is something you were able to leverage? You've been able to leverage? I mean, there's a cachet in looking for alien life that's going to bring you a certain amount of attention or notoriety or notoriety but you can also use that one can
3: use that and have you used it sure I've been using it ever since I started engineering school and the one thing as a woman in a crowd of men is that you are remembered everyone even in these large classes most of the professors didn't know all of the students' names but they all knew me <laughs> and i used that in any way i could and so did my fellow students so if there was a particularly gnarly problem set or if it came during a football week or something and people were doing other things than working on problem sets they would ask me go ask the professor for an extension. So we all were trying to figure out a way to use my uniqueness to our best advantage.
1: But if we fast forward later on in your career, um, you may have been able to leverage it in other ways. And also, I wonder if when you heard the term, so you're looking for little green men, I mean, I've seen you roll, I don't know if I've actually seen you roll your eyes at that. I've seen you squint like you are now. Um, But that is also something I think that you have used to your advantage, because you've turned it on its head.
3: Yes, certainly.
1: So when we started
3: the SETI project within NASA, when John Billingham started the project, the first thing we had to do was to build credibility and get beyond the UFO or little green man kind of connotations. And I would walk into a room, either scientific colleagues or congressional staffers, and uh, members of Congress themselves. And because of the cultural norm, they don't expect a woman to start talking about specifications and the details of the engineering. And it was suddenly, oh, gee, didn't expect to hear that. Maybe we should listen to her. So by simply showing and showing off sometimes that I was a lot smarter than they were, with respect to the field that I was working in, I could gain attention. And I did, for
1: whatever it took. The question is always implied with you, but I'll just ask it straight out since you've been doing this for a long time. Are we alone in the universe? Are we alone? I don't know the
3: answer to the question. Uh, That's why we're doing SETI. That's why we're doing experiments and observations to try and find out the answer. When I was a student, we knew that life, at least intelligent, technological life, couldn't live in very extreme environments. It had to be between the boiling and freezing points of water, had to be neutral, couldn't be very acidic or very basic. And that's all now been exploded now that we've been studying extremophiles. I mean, who would have expected to find life kilometers down into the crust which we do life finds a way in all kinds of environments life finds a way and so that's the story over my career has been that the universe has appeared to be more biofriendly than when i started out it doesn't mean it is we haven't proven that that appearances actually translate into reality but i think we will in this century
1: well and and finally jill um what does it mean that you have not found aliens so far in terms of how you sustain yourself psychologically? In other words, what's it like to work on a program that you may never have an answer for?
3: When I started in this exploration, I think I understood fairly well how big a question it was that I was trying to answer. And that I might not find an answer by the end of my life. That it might be my granddaughter or her granddaughter that eventually succeeds.
1: Jill Tarter, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, Molly, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
2: Jill Tarter is an astronomer, one of the founding members of the SETI Institute, where she is now on the Board of Trustees. She is the subject of a book by writer Sarah Scholes Making Contact Jill Tarter and the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. The ranks of women astronomers have been growing since jill Tarter took an engineering class according to a study by the american institute of physics about one-third of those who get a bachelor's degree in astronomy or astrophysics are women in science and tech more women are getting the degrees but not necessarily the jobs
1: we're no longer living in the era of 1950s sexist stereotypes but someone in the silicon valley
2: didn't get the memo up next Are women's brains just not suited for tech? It's Wonder Women on Big Picture Science. things have changed since the days when astronomer Jill Tarter was the only woman in her engineering class at Cornell University. According to the National Science Foundation, the balance is tipped toward greater equality when it comes to degrees earned, as well as job placement in most STEM fields, that is science, technology, engineering, and math.
1: The exception is the E in STEM. Men continue to seriously outnumber women in engineering and computer science. Why is this? A memo written by a Google software engineer suggests one reason. The culture is hostile to women. The memo was meant to be shared internally, but it was released publicly, and it struck a nerve both in and outside the walls of the tech giant. It reinforced the image of the Silicon Valley as the segregated valley.
2: The tech companies have been criticized for lack of diversity in hiring. Women account for 31% of Google's workforce, but just... 20% 20% of its technical staff, according to the company's own diversity reports. And while employment in IT fields has grown by 37% since 2003, the percentage of women in engineering hasn't changed. It's flat at 13%. And the percentage of women working in computer science is actually down since 1990. The Google memo was written in 2017, but the thinking was
1: borrowed from another era, where there were men's jobs and women's jobs. Well, if they don't get married, they can become dressmakers or cut people's nails in a barber shop or take care of kids and a lot of other dumb stuff.
2: (laughs) Well, Beaver, today
0: girls can be doctors and lawyers, too, you know. They're just as ambitious as boys are.
1: The memo was significant because it not only publicly revealed a stubborn imbalance of women in tech, but because it claimed that there was science supporting it. Men's brains are more suited than women's for tech jobs. Science journalist Angela Saini says this is a persistent myth and people are not looking at current research. How science got women wrong, writes Miss Saini in her book Inferior. She addresses the
5: software engineer's misguided memo. So it wasn't as though he explicitly said that women are biologically less capable of doing the job, but he certainly heavily implied it. So within his memo, he used this kind of biological argument that because of testosterone levels early in development that women somehow have different capabilities or different preferences to men. Underlying it all the arguments that he used come from various pieces of research but one of them in particular is work done by a researcher here at Cambridge University, Simon Baron-Cohen. Now he is a very well respected, world famous autism researcher. But what the part of the, his research that's more controversial is on sex differences. So he claims that there are such things as distinct male female brains and that they predispose the people who possess these male female brains to slightly different interests and hobbies and this uh, Google engineer drew his kind of inspiration from this. Although I have to say that having researched this topic in great, great detail for a number of years, this theory itself, Simon Baron Cohen's theory, doesn't really have a great deal of evidence behind it.
2: Well, let me just follow up briefly on what his point was. I mean, it may be that there's uh, some tendency, you know, the. leads to a difference in behavior in a technical environment between men and women? I don't know. But on the other hand, usually what the case is is that there's so much overlap in these capabilities that this shouldn't really affect the number of female engineers. I mean, what what was he trying to get at here?
5: Yes, absolutely. This is where it gets complicated because there is lots of research on sex differences. It is one of the most fashionable fields in science right now. Um, and the research really can tell you whatever you want it to tell you, depending on which study you happen to pick up. If you take any group of people and divide it down the middle, you will find differences between them. And that's a product of the fact that we are all different as individuals. And in fact, there's far more differences within the sexes than there are between them. You know, we are just so different. And this is where the complication comes in. Now, I've looked at this in detail, like I said, um, over the last decade or so, as very large studies have been done, and especially looking at various large groups of people and kind of analyses of lots of different parts of the brain and different psychological studies, what we see is that the differences are minimal. Even things that we strongly associate as being male traits, for example, spatial awareness or mathematical thinking, actually there's very little difference between men and women. So the science that he cites in the memo is actually not the whole story. And if we look at the whole story, In fact, there are very few differences between the sexes.
2: Now, he was sort of hinting at uh, a very common idea that there are boy jobs and there are girl jobs. Uh, Maybe you can give an overview of the stereotypes here. I mean, what are men supposed to be good at? What are women supposed to be good at?
5: Well, there you go. I myself studied engineering, so I would firmly say that, you know, it's not the case that science jobs or engineering or computer programming, I can program computers are necessarily specifically for men or specifically for women like you said there is some overlap but we do have these stereotypes that certain careers are for certain people what the guy who wrote that memo forgot james Daymore, is that software programming used to be a female profession many of the very first computer programmers were women including the very first of them all ada lovelace So what was
2: the point? I mean, I thought that what he was trying to do was address the imbalance, male-female imbalance, at Google and Google's efforts to remedy that imbalance and saying you're never going to be able to fix this problem because of this innate difference. Was that what he's trying to say?
5: Yeah, that's exactly what he was trying to say, that any number of diversity initiatives are not going to have an impact ultimately. You're not going to have absolute parity because... Even if there are some social factors involved, there are also biological factors. And the truth is we don't have the full scientific picture about that yet. We don't know to what extent those biological sex differences do impact on men and women's capability, although the research at the moment seems to suggest very little. What we do know though, is that there are many, many social and cultural factors that do impact it. So for example, the take up of STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics at a very young level among school children, We know that children as young as three have gender stereotypes about what's appropriate for boys and girls and that these only get worse as they get older. Now, ever since software programming, computers became a kind of male-dominated subject, and this only happened in the late 70s, 80s, that's the reason Silicon Valley looks the way it does. It's got really nothing to do with biology as far as we can tell because we know that software programming used to be a female profession. So the biological argument on purely historical grounds doesn't really seem to hold up here. And I think this is the problem that many people have with the memo is that James Daymore just seemed so happy to cling to these biological arguments, very spurious ones and quite selective, rather than looking at the historical, social, cultural picture as a whole that explains difference. Yes, there may be some small differences here and there, but they go no way Absolutely, no way to explaining the big gender differences we see in society. Well,
2: let's get into that then. Uh, part of the problem here, uh, according to your book, is that there is uh, a bias in the studies, and you've already mentioned that this is a subject that uh, uh, people love to study. Uh, maybe there's a gender difference there. Who wants to study it? In fact, maybe there is, because a lot of the studies seem to reinforce the stereotypes, at least as they apply to males, and. Could that be due to the fact that a lot of the studies are conducted by males?
5: I don't know about that. (laughs) That's something I haven't actually looked at, uh, to be honest. I haven't done a breakdown of who tends to do these studies. But we have to remember this is a cultural environment, so it's not just men who are finding sex differences. It's also women, and that's because stereotypes affect all of us. I also have uh, carry gender stereotypes, as do you, and we have to remember that these stereotypes can bias research. Now many scientists still insist that bias isn't a problem in science. Of course it is, of course it is, because not only when you're doing the research itself can it affect you, but also what you speculate afterwards. And this is particularly a problem when you're studying humans. We have very little data about the human brain. We have very little data about variation amongst humans. In the gap between the little that we know and the lot that we think we know because of stereotypes, speculation, scientific speculation, is rife. And this is where the problems happen. One example that I look at in the book is a very high-profile study that was done a few years ago looking at differences in white matter in the brain. So this is connectivity between different areas of the brain. And it seemed to show that men have more connectivity within the hemispheres, the two halves of their brain, and women have more connectivity between the two halves of their brain. Um and even if that were true, and there's some uh, controversy about whether it, whether the findings are actually reliable or not, but even if they are, what does that really tell us? We, we really don't know. And yet, when the paper was published speculation was rife not only on the part of the scientists who did the study but also by the public who interpreting some people said it shows that women are better at multitasking and one of the authors of the study told me himself you cannot draw that inference from these brain images so we have to be very careful that we don't kind of extrapolate too much from the little evidence that we have
2: If I were to take a a scan of a brain, for example, I don't know, an MRI, whatever is the appropriate scanning technology of the brain of a, you know, one-month-old baby, and here's a boy baby, here's a girl baby, would I I be able if they they just showed me the scans, would I be able to tell which one was which?
5: No, absolutely not. There is not a neuroscientist alive who can tell the difference between a male and female brain of any age.
2: I can imagine that people like to... uh, uh, speak to you at parties and dinners about all this because, for some reason, it is a very hot topic with with just about everybody. Uh, and, and and when they you know throw the usual chestnut at you, where is the female Mozart? What do you say?
5: Well, I think we have to remember just how different conditions were for women until relatively recently. Now, one example I like to give is of Darwin. Darwin believed that women were intellectually inferior to men. He was a Victorian. He lived uh, in Victorian England at a time when women, uh, even at primary level, didn't have the same level of education as men generally. Certainly, they weren't admitted to universities. They weren't allowed to enter scientific academies. They weren't allowed to vote. Married women weren't allowed to own property. So, tell me under those circumstances how difficult it must have been for any woman to have achieved anything. And they did. Women did achieve things. But against such incredible odds, you know, pressure on every single side. It's no coincidence that also the names that we remember are Western scientists, because also the West also had this kind of cultural hegemony and, and control over knowledge and power. So we really do, it's so vitally important to take into account the social factors that influence the choices that people make and the opportunities that they have in understanding where achievement lies.
2: Angela Saini, thanks very much for speaking with us.
5: Thank you.
1: Angela Saini is a journalist and the author of Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong. Coming up, a challenge to the
0: tech companies. Do you have what it takes to become truly inclusive? It takes an ability to really take a look at your organization and what is the commitment to diversity and how does that trickle down to recruitment and hiring practices?
2: Also, how does a hostile climate play a role in discouraging diversity? A new survey gives some insight.
4: We focused our attention on the experiences of women of color because we felt like there has already been a lot of attention on the experience of women generally that has actually led to an overfocus on the experiences of white women.
1: It's Wonder Women on Big Picture Science.
2: One of the barriers to women pursuing careers in science or technology is a climate that is subtly unwelcoming or worse. Harassment of women in space science and astronomy has been in the news and gotten our attention, but some researchers suspected that there was more to the story as big as it was. They wanted
1: to quantify other alarming anecdotes that they were hearing. Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Illinois, Catherine Clancy, and colleagues surveyed more than 400 astronomers and planetary scientists with questions of their experience in the workplace over the last five years. But this survey was unique.
4: We focused our attention on the experiences of women of color because women of color face a double bind, and we wanted to see the extent to which we could see that in the sciences.
1: The researchers asked the women about eight different issues related to identity, gender, gender identity, race, sexuality, physical ability, mental ability, neurodiversity, that is, variations in neurological conditions, and religion.
4: And we asked the extent to which they had overheard disparaging remarks about these kinds of identities, to the extent to which that they had experienced verbal and physical harassment as a result of these identities, and then whether or not they'd ever felt unsafe in their workplace... And finally, whether or not they'd ever skipped professional events due to feeling unsafe.
2: The result was the paper co-authored by Dr. Clancy, Double Jeopardy in Astronomy and Planetary Science, Women of Color Face Greater Risks of Gendered and Racial Harassment, published in the summer of 2017 in the Journal of Geophysical Research, Planets. The results may have been given less attention at the time than they deserved because they were published in a niche journal, but the implications are as broad as they are sobering.
4: Our main findings were that women of color experienced uh, the greatest degrees of verbal and physical harassment, even more so than white women, that they felt unsafe in their workplace in extraordinarily high numbers. Forty percent of the women of color in our sample said that they felt unsafe in the workplace as a result of their gender. And, you know, that was a really devastating number for us. And then, of course, a number of women, uh, women of color and white women, reported that they skipped professional events because they felt unsafe.
1: What was your reaction to the results of your survey? And from one account, I read that you were devastated. And I wonder if you could expound on that, because women and and women of color have reported this sort of behavior for a long time. So, So the survey results couldn't have come as a complete surprise.
4: No. um, I mean, the thing is, is that none of this work that I've been doing for the last five years has ever surprised me. You know, it's not that a single time I've seen data and been like, oh, I had no idea that women of color were going to experience greater degrees of harassment. Um, Instead, what I think it is, is there's there's something about hearing anecdotes and having your heart broken by having a friend tell you that something happened to them. But it's another thing altogether to have those strung together into a quantitative story. You know, one that says that this isn't just a one-off. This is actually a systemic problem.
1: Now, in in your survey, and as you just said, 40% of women of color reported that they felt unsafe. How do you define that term? That's an alarming word, to feel unsafe. How, How did you define it?
4: We didn't define it. We just asked them. To what, you know, have you ever felt unsafe in your workplace? And have you ever skipped any professional events because you felt unsafe? And so that certainly leaves it open for the respondent to interpret that term however they like. You know, the way I might interpret it might be different from the way you read it, but either way, I think it's going to be a pretty negative workplace experience if you could ever label what you're experiencing as unsafe.
1: You use the term in your abstract, microaggressions, and I wonder if you distinguish between microaggressions that one experiences in the workplace and a blunt, hostile
4: remark, and actual physical aggression. So microaggressions are really about different types of incivilities or unpleasant interactions you may have in the workplace that are clearly a result of your identity and usually specifically a result of your race. That's really where the term, I believe, originally came from, is understanding racial microaggressions. So someone might say something that's um, very subtly racially motivated, like making a comment about, oh, how often do you actually wash your hair to an African-American person? Or or actually, I'll tell you one that I I know happened here on my campus because a a lecturer told me about, a student of hers telling her about it, is that uh, there was this one African-American woman in a lecture hall. She was one of the only African-American women in the entire chemistry class. And she could hear a couple of white men behind her giggling and couldn't figure out why. And then at the end of the class, realized they had stuck a pen in her hair. Um, You know, she had sort of an afro and it was a a Department of Chemistry pen. So it was like a, let's make it as obvious as possible that you are not welcome here, that we find something othering and weird about you.
1: What was heartbreaking, truly, and and you identified this, was reading that um, uh, 18% of women of color and 12% of women just skipped out on uh, professional meetings on seminars and other events that they would otherwise go to because they wanted to avoid this hostile climate that it's so bad that you <laughs> that you avoid doing the thing that you love and participating in your field and and collaborating with your your colleagues because you don't know how you're going to be treated in that meeting
4: Oh, exactly. And you don't want to be reminded of, you know, the person who made a pass at you at lunch, or the person who made you feel small or made you feel stupid. So you miss out on that seminar, you miss out on that chance to meet, you know, the senior colleague who does the work that you do, um, or a chance to bond with some of your friends, uh, or a chance to just learn something new and exciting, you know. Um, And so, you know, what that means, though, is they miss out on that networking that um, can help them be seen as a, quote, team player, or help them meet the right person who helps them with a promotion. Uh, One of the things I was really struck by when conducting interviews for this project, which we hope will go into a a later publication, is that a number of the respondents, and not just women of color, but women of color, white women, white men, men of color, um, that were all represented in our sample, many of them said, oh, I started out in physics. But I left physics to go to astronomy because I wanted to be in a less hostile discipline. (laughs) And so, uh, I mean, that makes me think that physics might actually be even worse than astronomy in terms of how hostile it is or just how intimidating that workplace can feel.
1: Workplace aggression and sexual harassment in the workplace are not new, but you found that people did not expect to find them present in the sciences as well. And why would people think that the sciences would be immune to aggression and and sexual harassment.
4: Sure, and this is one of the things that I find frustrating sometimes <laughs> in fact as someone who's both a, a social scientist and a trained life scientist because I'm a biological anthropologist. Um so I'm always so surprised when I encounter scientists from other disciplines who are incredibly staunch believers that science is a meritocracy, that the best people who do science are the ones who stay in science, and they're the ones who succeed in science. They're the ones who get the best papers and the best funding. And it just couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, what really matters in science is your pedigree. What matters, unfortunately, is often your identity. Uh, the number of African American female postdocs that I've known over the last five to seven years, who um, end up on every shortlist that they go up, you know, when they go up for jobs, and then are always there's always a white man chosen over them, and it's always they're always told afterwards, "Oh, well, you interviewed really well, but this other person was just a better fit for our department. You know, these are extraordinary scientists that I'm talking about who aren't getting these jobs. So it's not that they're not good enough, right? They're getting the interviews. I really think that scientists have to start paying closer attention to issues of implicit bias and interrogating this notion of meritocracy a little bit more. And, Like stop! I just really think we need to stop deluding ourselves that everything works out for a reason or that everything is fair in our field, because it's not that way in any workplace. And when we acknowledge that, that's when we actually can start to raise some consciousness around it and actually affect change. Catherine Clancy, thank you so much for speaking with us.
1: Thank you.
2: Catherine Clancy is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Illinois.
1: One group is fighting the unwelcoming scientific culture by working
0: to diversify
1: it for both women and men.
0: Hello, my name is Antonia Franco. I'm the executive director of SACNAS. SACNAS is the Society for the
1: Advancement of Chicanos, Hispanics, and Native Americans in Science. And this is what they're up against. For science, technology, and engineering jobs, the majority are held by whites, 6% are held by Hispanics, and only 0.2% are held by Native Americans. The members of SACNAS provide training at conferences that are multidisciplinary, multicultural, and growing in popularity. The unofficial motto of SACNAS when it comes to minorities pursuing careers in science, you can't imagine what you can't see.
0: I think, first of all, if you are a first-generation, low-income student, it's going to be a harder path to navigate to even get through k-12 education loving science or experiencing science and then getting to college and wanting to pursue that and if you don't have the mentoring and role models to show you that you can make it a lot of our students may start in science but they don't last they don't stay and then those that do that go on to the professional workforce there are very few that look like them so if i don't see myself in a startup company or in a huge tech industry or, you know, business, the likelihood of me staying and feeling connected is very low.
2: What would SACNAS do for me? Suppose I were a, you know, Latina, Mm -hmm. and I've, I've been interested in science. What would contacting your organization do for me? How would you help me?
0: That happens often, right? So wherever I go, if it's in a meeting or a conference or what have you, I'm always encountering individuals who have no knowledge of SACNAS, And especially their students, I get so excited about it because I feel like we have a wealth of opportunity and resources for students. We have a conference, a national conference every year that brings about 4,000 individuals. Half of those are undergraduate and graduate students. And we give them an opportunity to present their research. And for most of these young people, this is their first time that they presented research. They can find their first internship they can find a job opportunity, and they can find graduate school.
2: What about uh, getting, for example, high-tech industry representatives at the conferences? Do you do that?
0: Um, We are slowly moving in that direction. I mean, it's really hard to articulate to, you know, other big tech companies about what we do and what we have to offer. It takes an, an ability to really take a look at your organization. And... What is the commitment to diversity and how does that trickle down to recruitment and hiring practices? So why not partner with nonprofits like SOCNAS and other organizations that can help bring the talent to you? That's one viable strategy that we're still trying to break into, if you will.
2: Antonia, you talk about conferences that SACNAS has, but on the other hand, if I were studying, I don't know, geology, I might go to an American Geophysical Union conference. I mean, there are plenty of conferences so. about science, so you know, why should I go to this one? So
0: when you look at science, we're the largest science diversity organization that is multicultural. If you look at our participation, we reflect our nation's demographics, first of all. So when you come to SACNAS and when you come to our conference, and you're toying around, you know, I'm interested in this topic or this discipline, but I'm not sure, it's the perfect place to explore that. We see this as a training. This helps them to launch into their own scientific societies
2: where they're not gonna see the diversity. Do you have any examples of that? Have you ever heard any stories where people said, you know, I suddenly realized that this was a job that was as open to me as anyone?
0: Well, I do have an example, and it's a much older, you know, it was a college student. But there was a college student who started with SAKNAS in the '90s, and she was just had completed her bachelor's degree and was participating in our conference. And in that process, she met one of our founders. And through that conversation, the founder had shared with her, and she's female as well, really strong female, accomplished scientist, and talked about her experience in research and her experience in academia and what have you, and that student had such a positive experience with the mentor who was a founder. She pursued, she had a pathway. It was recognizable to her because she was not only sitting next to someone that looked like her and could understand her, but who was also identifying how to get there. What's even more mind-blowing is to hear about professionals who have been in, whether it's academia or in their profession for 20 years, they come to our conference, and they say for the first time they see a sea of color and that they feel that they're connected and that they're home. It's something that they don't get in their own scientific societies.
2: Maybe you could tell me the story of how Saknas got started, because you say it's been around for 40 years, so that's a fairly long long time. What was the deal there?
0: Essentially in the 70s, there were a group of scientists that went to a AAAS meeting. And in that meeting, they realized, they looked around and said, ah, there aren't too many of us. And so they say that in an elevator, they had this discussion and said, you know, I think it's time for us to start this organization called SACNAS that will help young people and will bring more diversity into academia. And so they all agreed and said, you know what, but isn't this crazy that if something happens to this elevator, we lose the entire diversity of our scientific community. (laughs) So yeah, they had a lot of vision. Um, Back in the 70s and unfortunately at times, you know, we're still relevant today
2: Now your background is as a Latina, but the organization also includes Native Americans Mm -hmm. Do they have any special difficulties here say compared with other groups? I mean, they're enormously underrepresented in, uh, in the science community
0: Absolutely, I think they do they do have some additional unique challenges and then you know they really depend if you grew up in a reservation It's a very different experience than if you grew up in an urban community. And even then, there are some cultural aspects that uh, one needs to be aware of in terms of helping Native students be successful. And, you know, part of that is that, and I would say this is with Native communities and Latinos and maybe a lot of first-generation communities, if the family is not aware how to navigate the experience, you know, they may not know how to help them and how to connect them to resources, and so, Is that a tangible experience to go to college? Sometimes it's like you need to provide for your family and you need to get a job. So a lot of Native students and other underrepresented students are working full-time, going to school full-time, and helping with a family.
2: Well, finally, Antonia, SACNAS has been around for more than four decades now. How do you know whether your organization is successful at encouraging individuals and seeing them succeed in science? I mean, do you have some metrics here that you can... Refer me to?
0: Absolutely. You know, when our students come to our conference, they get so excited they want to create a chapter. Um, That's the way that we stay connected with them at their home institution if they don't have the supports that they need. As of now, as of this year, we have over 115 chapters. We have over 5,000 members nationally. These are all national numbers. And so we are preparing 30 amazing professional scientists every year. And we have prepared almost 300 professional scientists that are representing academia, industry, corporations, government, and policy as well.
2: Antonio Franco, thank you so very much for talking with us.
0: Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was great to be here with you. Antonio Franco
1: is the Executive Director of SACNAS, the Society for the Advancement of Chicanos, Hispanics, and Native Americans in Science.
2: So what we've heard in the show is while more women are getting degrees in science and technology, it's not the case that equality has been achieved by any means. Our challenges in leveling the playing field for women are the same for science as for so many other aspects of our society. There's an elephant in the room, and it's called history. We're up against trying to change the way things are done when the elephant says, but this is the way we've always done them. But past needn't be prologue, and it seems that thanks to organizations like Sockness and the women who are not intimidated, the future is looking pretty good.
1: Thanks to the team with diverse talents... Producer Gary Niederhoff, Operations Manager Barbara Vance and Intern Sarah Durwin.
2: Thanks also to financial support from Rena Sholsky, David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Junior Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life, including the behavior of rings around planets. And big thanks also to our listeners.
1: Your ears have been attuned to an episode of Big Picture Science called Wonder Women. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science episodes, well, you'll find them in our archive at bigpicturescience.org.
2: And if you're a podcast listener but prefer listening to over-the-air radio because, after all, FM uses diversity antennas, check out the listing on our website. Side of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like this show.
0: The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups